0: Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger.
1: Welcome to episode 35 of Sleep Talk, the podcast talking all things sleep, and welcome to my co-host, Moira.
0: Hello, Dave. Hello, everyone.
1: So this episode, the theme is sleeping pills. So we're going to talk about medications and their use for helping insomnia. And one of the reasons for doing that is it's something that's really commonly done. So not necessarily just prescription medications, but think of that as what people are taking as over-the-counter medications and use of prescription medications is actually surprisingly common. So what is topical for you this month in sleep, Maura?
0: Well, definitely the Sleep Awareness Week, of course, at the start of October and the Australasian Sleep Association annual conference called Sleep Down Under, which is becoming bigger and bigger and better every year, isn't it? It's I'm looking forward to that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we're off to that in a couple of weeks mm. and already there's over 600 registrants so it's mm. looking like being a really successful mm. meeting.
0: Yeah, it's truly international, more and more. What about you?
1: So as well as to the conference and I'll see you there. Before that, I'm just going via Lucknow in India to another yes. conference. And that's really shaping up well as well. And uh, we've got over 500 delegates coming to that meeting from all around Asia and some international speakers. And we've set our dates for the conference in India next year. So put it in your calendar, October 11th to 13th, 2019 in Nagpur. That's fantastic. So Nagpur's famous for oranges. So, you know, some nice or- oranges and orange
0: juice. <laughs> Gets your yeah. vitamin C up. Exactly.
1: And a couple of things we're doing in the practice, we're running some clinical trials. So a clinical trial of some new medications in insomnia. So dual orexin receptor antagonist, a sort of a similar family of drugs to suvorexant that we've talked about before on the podcast. And we're also looking at trialing once nightly form of sodium oxybate for narcolepsy, which is really exciting because, you know, that is quite a novel type of medication for narcolepsy. And if we can get something like that that proven that it's working registered in Australia I think that'll be a big move forward for patients.
0: Incredible. Will it drop the price or uh, not necessarily?
1: We would hope so because mm. once it's registered then we've got some leverage to be able to look at reimbursement mm. but we haven't even been able to look at reimbursement because the government won't reimburse a drug that's not approved for use.
0: That's right so it's just baby steps I guess. Yeah mm. so we're, we're, we're getting there. Mm.
1: The theme for this month's podcast topic is sleeping pills. So why talk about this? Well, Insomnia is common, and that's even if you define insomnia as difficulty getting to sleep, staying asleep, symptoms for three months or more, and impacting on daytime functioning. Most epidemiological surveys suggest that's around one in six adults in developed countries like Australia and the United States. So insomnia is a really common problem, and people are often either resorting to medications over the counter or prescription medications to help manage their insomnia. So worth talking about them. And we've got a really great interview with Wallace Mendelson coming up. And one of the things I liked about that interview and in the book that Wallace has recently written called Sleeping Pills was the historical context. He'd really put a lot of work into, and you'll hear him talk about it, is how throughout the ages people have used different substances to help with sleep. And I think mm. that helps us understand a bit, you know, how we use it in, in this day and age.
0: And that's not a new thing.
1: Yeah. And so Moira, you and I have both got a pretty strong bias to go with non-drug approaches up front.
0: Absolutely. Well, particularly as a psychologist, it's not my area of expertise or licensing agreement. You know, I don't have the right to prescribe, but I have a philosophy anyway that non-drug strategies for insomnia are better. But over the years, obviously working alongside people like you and other medical colleagues, I do, I've softened, if you like, I do understand that there are plenty of occasions where people do need medical Medication, but I still would have a strong philosophy that it's short term mm-hmm. and or intermittent. That's where I, where I stand on it, and that's over the counter ones as well, yeah. as well as the prescribed ones. And the thing is, from my clinical practice, it's yeah, it's the over the counter ones that's been such a surprise to me over the last twenty years or so. Just things that I, I won't even name what they are because I don't want to. I just was shocked at things that I wouldn't have thought had a hypnotic quality. That they that people would be using over the counter stuff, and and of course the things like cannabis and alcohol and other things. It's yeah, it's a, it's in alarming sort of uh, amounts, and yeah. I think that that's something we can cover off on a different one. But it's sort of along the same lines as sleeping pills.
1: Yeah, it's a good point, and I think cannabis and sleep is a great topic. So we'll come to that. I think in yeah. f- in a future episode, and yeah, people are using. Uh, medications and whilst we're very strong on the non-drug approach yeah you know, I would absolutely agree with you you know even if I'm going to use a medication which is often because someone's very distressed or feeling quite unwell, I'll always try and use a non-drug approach in parallel with that because yeah, if I can absolutely. reduce the intensity of symptoms with a psychology-based approach, mm. then the drug's got less work to do. Yeah. I can use a lower dose or a less harmful drug that's got a better yeah. safety profile.
0: I think what was life-changing for me for like around about 10 years ago or so was these, the papers, the first of a few from Charles Moran's group and looking at people who, you know, a randomized, good quality randomised control study, looking at people with insomnia, and they were assigned to either medication only, CBTI only, or a combination of the two. And the people who had the combination of the two, plus if they were off the medication by the time you ended their therapy, at the 12-month follow-up, the people that did best were those ones. So it made me realise hey, you know what, If that, that's okay, that's enough evidence for me, particularly when it's replicated years later. He's done this study many, a few times. Mm. So that was, yeah, I think I used to be a little bit too heavy-handed on my advice around, you know, at all costs, you know, as quick as you can, get off your medication. And I hadn't necessarily given them the tools they needed to cope and to sort of more gradually come off the medication alongside learning the non-drug stuff. So I guess, yeah, it's been a bit of a, maybe that'll come up later with the clinical tip, I guess. that's where That's where I've come. I've sort of evolved, if you like, as a yeah, clinician.
1: Thanks. So I had a chance to interview Wallace Mendelssohn and Wallace has been the professor of psychiatry and clinical pharmacology at the University of Chicago and has recently written a couple of books, The Science of Sleep, that was my pick a couple of months ago, I think even last month as my pick of the month, and Sleeping Pills, which is we talk through some of the content of his book, Sleeping Pills, in this interview thanks Wallace very much for helping us out with the podcast
2: well it's my pleasure thanks for uh, allowing me to join you today
1: and congratulations on the two books that you've just recently released I've really enjoyed both of them and I think they're great resources for people
2: thank you very much Uh, they're both devoted to slightly different aspects of sleep science of sleep giving a general background of the whole topic and the sleeping pill book as its name indicated focusing in on treatment of insomnia and uh, I, I hope that folks will
1: find them helpful. In the book on understanding sleeping pills, I really enjoyed the section on the history of sleeping pills. C- can you talk us through some of that history and sort of where we've come from?
2: The history of using substances to help you sleep, of course, goes back to the very earliest times. And of course, the two agents that have been used going back Centuries, of course, are opiates and alcohol. Both of them are actually kind of false friends of sleep. In the case of alcohol, the problem is that although it can cause you to fall asleep a little sooner, you have in effect a kind of mini withdrawal syndrome the same night that you take it so that the second half of the night you have extremely disturbed sleep. In persons who are alcohol addicted, some will take a drink to help them sleep. And of course, in the very short term of one night, it may help them sleep a little sooner. But in the long term, of course, it's the worst possible thing you can do because it creates a kind of sleep disturbance which can go on even when you're dry for a month or even one or two years. In the case of opiate, it actually produces more of a relaxed wakefulness kind of state rather than sleep. And in fact, when people who are not used to opiates take them, they often have disturbed sleep and a decrease of 50% or more of deep sleep, so-called slow-wave sleep. In persons who are addicted, uh, sleep is shorter with more awakenings, with less slow wave and REM. And a recent study showed that chronic users of opiate have chronically disturbed sleep, daytime sleepiness, fatigue, and a high risk for depression. So both of these historical substances are truly false friends of sleep. Mm -hmm. Moving forward to the 19th century, the story of barbiturates appeared in late century uh, as the handiwork of Adolf von Daer, who was a graduate student in the city of Ghent. He had been given the task of making a cyclic molecule from urea and an organic acid, and he worked on this for months and months. One night, he was successful and finally made this ring compound. He was so excited that he went out to the local tavern. When he got to the tavern, it turned out that a celebration was already going on. Ghent was a military town, and the soldiers were having a celebration for the feast of the patron saint of the artillery, St. Barbara. And somehow during the course of the evening, St. Barbara and Urea got combined into the term of his new discovery, the barbiturates. It wasn't until the early 1900s that the first one that actually had the ability to induce sleep was developed by Fisher and von Mering, the two working in England to find a barbiturate derivative that would affect sleep. When it finally happened, Fisher was on vacation in Italy, and von Mehring sent him a telegram and said, we did it, we did it. And Fisher said, "Well, that's wonderful. Let's name our compound after the city on vacationing in the most beautiful city in the world." To his mind, and that city was Verona. And the first sedating barbiturate was Veronal. The barbiturates rapidly became the overwhelming hypnotic of the early 20th century. Others, of course, were chloral which had been discovered. In the 1830s, there was new interest in it after James Young Simpson in Scotland uh, found chloroform as an obstetrical anesthetic. Chloroform is kind of an unpleasant substance to work with. And in the 1860s, a chemist named Oscar Liebrich tried to find a substance that was more pleasant, but would turn into chloroform in the body. He found something which came known as chlorohydrate, which uh, it turned out, although he was wrong about his chemistry, it doesn't make chloroform. It uh, indeed helps people sleep. And chlorohydrate, along with barbiturates and several others, were very effective, but on the other hand, very toxic and addicting substances. To come up a little more recently, in the mid-1950s, a chemist named Leo Sternbach at Hoffman La Roche was trying to find a sleeping pill that would be safer than barbiturates. He didn't have much success and he sort of stopped the project. In 1957, he was cleaning out his cupboards, so to speak, and throwing away all of these old bottles of substances that hadn't worked. He asked his assistant to do some basic animal testing on each of them before tossing them. And after 39 bottles, the frustrated assistant came to him and said, surely enough is enough. None of these work. And Sternbach's reply was, well, let's try number 40 before we quit. Uh-huh. He tried number 40, and it turned out that it was a powerful, sedating drug. It caused sedation, muscle relaxation, ataxia, and other symptoms. It was called epoxide. And shortly thereafter, it became marketed as Librium, the first clinically used benzodiazepine. In the U.S., it was marketed in 1960. It wasn't until 1970 that the first benzodiazepine specifically recommended for sleep became available. And that was fluorazepam or Dalmane.
1: Yeah. So when then you came and started your practice in psychiatry and sleep medicine in the late 70s, what were the tools that you could use for people with insomnia?
2: Fluorazepam didn't come along until 1970, and it took several years before it became popular, although then it became extremely popular. So when I first started practice, barbiturate, chlorohydrate, other non-barbiturate agents like lutecimide were the main agents. They They had many, many drawbacks, of course. They're very, very toxic and overdose, so that for typical barbiturates like pentobarbital, some therapeutic doses could often be lethal. Mm -hmm. They are highly addicting. Mm -hmm. The barbiturates also stimulate the enzymes in the liver to break down other drugs, And of course, they are respiratory suppressants.
1: Yeah, I certainly still occasionally see people on barbiturates or chloral hydrate. It's pretty rare. And I must admit, they're often the sort of patients where nothing works. And I do wonder Uh what we're treating. And sometimes people are trying to chase this unrealistic sort of absence of awareness.
2: I have the same experience here. And you you still find prescriptions being written, particularly in rural areas, by by non-specialists.
1: Let's move forward to current times. How have the medications available changed? What are some of the things we've got available to us now?
2: Well, I think there was a lot of impetus for changes to take place. There were issues of daytime sedation with the barbiturates, although now as I look back on it, I wonder how often it was true daytime sedation and how often it might have been exacerbation of sleep apnea, of unrecognized sleep apnea. But in any event, it was in the 1980s that we first began to see the so called Z drugs, starting with Zaltadim. Their advantages over the barbiturates are very, very obvious. The advantages over the benzodiazepines continue to be argued to this day, from a purely basic science point of view, they have a number of advantages in that their binding to the GABA benzodiazepine receptor tends to be to subtypes more specific to sleep so that they are less likely to produce non-sleep effects. Mm-hmm. Another way for the benzodiazepines, the therapeutic dose for sleep is very close to the dose that would produce other kinds of effects like ataxia, confusion and so on. For the newer Z drugs, there's a wider margin, uh, so-called therapeutic window between the uh, dose for sleep and the doses at which many of these other things appear. Now as the years have gone on, the Z drugs have taught us that, that each new generation of drugs may have some benefits. but are of course, not magic pills. Uh, here in the U.S., I've noticed a study recently that the number of emergency room visits related to toxicity from zolfidum actually doubled between 2005, and I think it was 2010, and it continues to go up. Some of the things that we thought might not be problems continued to happen. Sleepwalking and complex behaviors uh, began to be documented, so it turned out those were not uh, purely true From the for only older drugs. Issues of sleep eating, sleep sex, sleep driving sleep shopping even, continue to appear many of them do have respiratory depressant qualities albeit more mild than benzodiazepines or older drugs now one of the other things that has happened in recent years has been the use of non hypnotics for the purposes of sleep i i have some strong feelings about that I would like to uh, talk with you about it but let me just finish with prescription drugs first which are recommended specifically for sleep. I guess the other development in recent years has been at least three kinds of drugs that work by an entirely different mechanism than the benzodiazepines or the Z drugs. Certainly one of these is suvorexant, which works on the erexin system. Certainly an advantage to think about, particularly in people who haven't done well on the older drugs. I would just utter a couple of notes of caution. And one is that, of course, it also is a restricted drug. In studies of drug liking in people who have history of addictions, it came out as having similar drug liking to exalted them. Another quality about it is that kinetics are such that drug exposure is greatest in women and also in obese men and women. So when you combine those two, there is a higher likelihood of side effects in obese women for whom the dose generally should be lowered. And of course, because of its unique quality of working on this orexin system, occasional patients will have some of the symptoms which are usually associated with narcolepsy. These can include sleep paralysis and cataplexy, cataplexy being a sudden loss of muscle tone usually in association with expression of emotion and sleep paralysis being uh, at the transition of waking and sleep, suddenly finding yourself awake but unable to move, which can be a very scary proposition if you're not familiar with it. Other new drugs include melatonin receptor agonists in the U.S. or I think in Australia, Agomelatine, although it is marketed as a antidepressant, is my understanding.
0: Yeah.
2: Just speaking of Remeldon, because I'm more familiar with it, it does have one significant advantage in that it is not a restricted drug with no evidence of drug liking or significant addiction. Disadvantages are that it takes longer to work, usually a week or two, and it's also very specific for helping sleep onset without helping total sleep or awakenings during the night. The final drug is doxepin, which is a new use for an old drug. It's a tricyclic antidepressant which has been around from the 1950s. But in recent years, it's been found that very low doses like three to six milligrams can help reducing the number of awakenings during sleep. Again, one advantage is that it's not a restricted drug in terms of significant evidence of addictive properties has some limitations. The most major one of which is that it doesn't reduce the time it takes to fall asleep mm-hmm. or increase total sleep significantly, but it can be useful for people who have awakenings during the night.
1: Thanks. And then you mentioned before there's some non-indicated medications that are being used widely. Uh, that you've got some strong opinions about. Yeah, what are they?
2: Doctors, of course, can prescribe a drug for any purpose they see fit. But when, it's, when it is not uh, the purpose that in the U.S., the Food and Drug Administration or its equivalent in Australia have given a recommendation, which is known as an indication when it's used for a different purpose, it's known as off-label prescribing. A couple of those have some concern to me. The biggest concern I have is the more recent popularity of and use of quetiapine as a sleep agent. Quetiapine is a second-generation antipsychotic. It's also used for mania, and it's a very, very potent kind of drug. Um, it also has an indication in the U.S. as a gen- treatment for depression. When somebody has been on at least two antidepressants and they're not working, it's sometimes used as a additional agent to, to make the antidepressant work harder, so to speak. I have a lot of cautions about the use of ketamine because I think a lot of non-specialist physicians don't realize what a potent group of drugs that it comes from. Certainly, the second-generation drugs, uh, antipsychotics are have many benefits over the first generation drugs like chlorpromazine for instance or stelazine but they certainly still have risks the one that is particularly disturbing to me is the risk of a neurological disorder known as tardive dyskinesia although this risk is decreased in the second generation drugs It's still present. The second-generation antipsychotics can have powerful effects on your metabolism that can push you in the direction of weight gain and uh, push you in the direction of diabetes. Ketiapine is a little better in that than most of the others in that group, but it's still something possible. And my own belief, just in summary, is that these are drugs that are better reserved for psychosis. I would mention the one use for quetiapine for sleep that I do see is if you have somebody who has major depression and he hasn't responded to at least two antidepressants, if you use quetiapine as adjunctive therapy, in addition, you can be helping the depression and you can take advantage of any sedating qualities that quetiapine might have so that that's the sort of the one exception
1: we have the same issue with quetiapine in australia it's being used pretty commonly in primary care and i think seen as a more benign medication than what it really is so not used with due respect undue caution. To finish up, draw you out on some of your clinical experience to help some of the sort of clinicians that listen to the podcast. So when you're seeing somebody with insomnia, you've got all these tools that you could potentially use. How do you decide what you're going to use in a given individual?
2: If anxiety is a very major problem, and so it's not just a sleep issue, but an issue of anxiety in, in the person's life in general, or excessive anxiety focused on the sleep issue, I think there's some room for using benzodiazepines. Aside from that group, I I think that it's probably wiser to use the newer drugs. Incidentally, I would just mention as a clinician for that same group of people where anxiety is a very major problem, that's also a key to me that if I use non-medicine therapy and doing CBT-I, I'm always very cautious in the progressive muscle relaxation portion because folks with a great deal of anxiety, instead of becoming calmer as you do muscle relaxation procedures, sometimes become even more anxious just as a a little clinical observation. I guess the next thing I would mention is in making a decision to use which hypnotic, if there's a history of substance abuse, I would avoid any of the scheduled drugs. And of course, substance abuse is terribly common in the U.S. I think the current figure is that about 20% of Americans say that they have used drugs for non-medical reasons at some time in their life. And I'm, I'm sure the real number is substantially higher. Now, when you talk about what drugs can you use, then the non-scheduled drugs would be remelteon and doxepin. And I think this might also be a case where one could consider using sedating antidepressants such as as Trazodone in this very, very specialized use, which is persons with a history of substance abuse. Mm -hmm. I guess the the next thing I do in choosing which drug to give is you, you want to match the kinetics of the drug to the specific patient's problem. So for example, if the patient complains uh, waking up too early in the morning or having a lot of awakenings in the night or not sleeping long enough, I probably wouldn't use the Z-drug Xalopon because it's only helpful for going to sleep. It's not helpful for these other things. Conversely, if a person's main problem is going to sleep, I, I wouldn't use Doxepin because it primarily is helpful for awakenings in the night. So a very major factor would be matching the person's drug to the the specific complaints.
1: Yeah, thank you. And then when you're using hypnotics or sleeping pills to help with insomnia, what are some red flags or things where, you know, a patient says something and you're like, oh, I've just got to be a bit wary here. What are some things you've learned over the years?
2: Well, the number one thing for me is to look for depression and you can do this at two points. The best point is before you ever start a medicine. The second point would be later if both you and the patient are feeling unhappy that things haven't been more successful. Now, the reasons to look at for depression are twofold. The first is that if depression is present, not only will hypnotics not help, they may make the depression worse. Mm -hmm. The key is if you think that depression is what's going on, then you need an antidepressant. If a person does have both depression and trouble sleeping, there's pretty clearly a role for using a hypnotic as adjunctive treatment in depression. But diagnosing and treating depression is certainly the first thing to think about. And of course, if a person with depression is having trouble sleeping, some of the are sedating. Antidepressants can be of help. I guess another thing is to reconsider the possibility of sleep apnea. And this is for a couple of reasons. One, of course, is that if a person has sleep apnea, they can come in without realizing that they have it and complain of poor quality sleep or daytime sleepiness. If a person that you put on a sleeping pill starts complaining of greater daytime sleepiness, it is possible, of course, that this is due to the extension of the therapeutic effect, that it's daytime sedation due to the medication. But a second thing to always keep in mind is the increase in daytime sleepiness may be because the sleeping pill you gave exacerbated the sleep disordered breathing. So those are two biggies to me. And I would close with one final one. And that is whenever you're giving a hypnotic, by far the most important thing to do is try to work with a patient to have realistic expectations. Insomnia is a terrible kind of suffering. And so you can certainly understand a person's motivation to want action and want action quickly, you know they're suffering. They want relief, but in spite of the strong need or desire for something that's going to be fast and do a total job, that's that's closer to magic. That's not medicine. Yeah, most of these medicines can help sleep, but they, you may have to try more than one. You may have to try different doses. You may need to go back to the beginning and rethink things like we just mentioned, like, for instance, was there unrecognized depression? So it's very important to start with patient to explain this and to explain that the likelihood is that they are going to be helped and that they're going to feel better. But it's not realistic to think that this will happen overnight or to think that suddenly the whole world has changed and it's kind of a magical answer. On the other hand, you can say, that folks that you work with will get better and they just have to be patient and persistent.
1: Thanks very much. They're really great tips and yeah, you know, I agree with you. Is setting expectation is the really important thing and teasing out, you know, what are people dissatisfied about sleep and trying to recalibrate them if they are unrealistic in what they hope to get out of treatment. So thanks a lot for helping us out with that and yeah, thanks again for the books that you've written. I think they're really great. Resources.
2: Well, well, thank you. And again, the science of sleep and understanding sleeping pills are both available on Amazon and they cover the kind of material that we've talked about today.
0: That was a great interview. I really enjoyed that. I think you've sort of covered it all off. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it was really great, and you know, Wallace. The topics that he covered really do follow the outline of his book, Sleeping Pills. Mm. So, I can highly recommend that if you're looking for a bit more depth and you want to sort of flesh that out. And as he said, it is available via Amazon. I read it on a Kindle, but I've also now got a hard copy of the book. Mm. And so, look for that if you're looking for more information on Sleep Hub. There's also a link on medications for insomnia, and then some links through to more information on different medications. And actually, use that post from Sleep Hub as the basis. writing a book chapter in the Australian textbook on sleep medicine so you know it's quite good information that's there and Moira you and I together with Tony Fernando wrote an article for the Medical Journal of Australia now about yeah, five years 2013, ago wasn't it? Yeah, yeah but that gives a nice summary too of non-drug strategies medications for insomnia and how to mm-hmm. link the two together and that's publicly available So, Moira, what's your clinical tip of the month?
0: Well, I think what I alluded to earlier in our episode, that I think that we need to be both sort of non... Prescribers and medical profession need to be aware of the benefits of both of of having the non drug strategies alongside the drug strategies, and preferably I would like to not even see them started wherever possible. But being aware that particularly very high distress, and particularly you know the high distress that can be even leading to say suicidality etc. Just ex- pretty extreme conditions mm-hmm. where you just need to take the heat out of it a little bit, particularly if they're waiting to get into someone to help them with non-drug strategies. Sometimes it's a number of weeks, as we know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that I would encourage people to to see not either or that often the combination can be good but to be withdrawing or less dependency upon the hypnotics or the, you know the, the sleeping pills as the confidence or the skill base in non-drug strategies emerges and, and coming off it in a, a supervised way and involving the prescriber it's always a, a good idea <laughs> it's nothing more annoying than you know being against the you know having a sort of a sort of a wars yeah, around absolutely. that and that it doesn't help any anybody. philosophical you know guidelines and, yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: When if health professionals if we're not if we're giving mixed messages, yeah. then we're just not providing good care. Yeah. You know, absolutely, I, we need to be yeah. working collaboratively yeah. together. So that's my hot tip. Thank you.
0: What's your pick of the month, Dave?
1: So this month it's Julie Flygare's book, Wide Awake and Dreaming. So Julie wrote the book a number of years ago, and it's about her own personal experience of when she was around the time of being diagnosed with narcolepsy. With Cataplexy. Yeah, it's quite old and, in that book now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And the struggles that she had and then her progress as she became established on treatment and sort of got to better understand how to manage her symptoms. And, you know, people I see with narcolepsy and their friends and family have consistently found that a really helpful resource mm-hmm. just to better yeah, understand it's what it's like and the symptoms people get. Mm-hmm. So it's now been released as an audio book, which is fantastic. And Julie herself has reads it and narrates it. So I always like audio books that the author actually yeah, narrates. It just yeah, has a, such a lot more warmth and yeah. sort of personal touch yes, it to does. it. So I kind of highly recommend Julie's book, Wide Awake and Dreaming. Was in a sort of hard copy, but now also as an audio book. What about for you, Moira?
0: Well, I guess knowing that we were doing this episode on sleeping pills... What caught my eye in the last month, actually one of his other books, is that a guy called Dr. Ray Moynihan, Australian researcher. He his book from two thousand and five called Selling Sickness was really big bestseller, which I didn't know about this at the time. Did you? Was it across your radar back yes, then? Yes, because yeah. it was in that <laughs>
1: book that he claimed restless legs didn't exist ah, and it was a uh, made up sort of fiction of yeah. the pharmaceutical industry
0: Yeah, I like, I mean, I'm probably not as, hard, I'm not, I'm definitely not as hard-lined as him, a bit, a bit anti-pharmaceuticals by any stretch but I guess uh, it's, it catches my eye that we do, uh, we definitely have a worldwide problem with over-prescribing absolutely. and over-pathologising, we have to agree
1: and even from his book in 2005 I absolutely agree with his message yeah. it was just it was a just little too, little too strong yeah. that was all. Yeah.
0: So I think that it's a little bit controversial perhaps uh, in light of you know we're talking about sleeping pills and, and all Wallace Mendelssohn's wonderful work and we, I don't want to be disparaging against the idea of pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. whatsoever but I think it's probably just a nice little balance just to, to, to draw our attention to and the, the book that I have, had come across in the last month was Sex, Lies and Pharmaceuticals that was in 2010 that he wrote it, and it caused an absolute international storm uh-huh. because it was around this sort of he says it like a made up and I think it's, I think it's really made up like female sexual dysfunction disorder around females not wanting to have sex and so let's give them all these pills I would say Let's just let them sleep.
1: Yes.
0: <laughs> These women are just, they're tired. They're not interested. They don't have dysfunction. Yeah. So uh, that was in a lecture that I, you know, in my other life, is talking around that, like the history of psychology and different theories. And like this week's one was on the postmodern perspectives and this idea of social constructionism that we, as a society, we've just sort of, we can just make up stuff. Like, sure. so So that's where he came into my spotlight mm-hmm. in, uh, in the radar. I was there. Yeah. So I just thought that's going to be my pick of the month. Not that I'm endorsing his views or anything like that, but I think it might be just have it's worth people having a having a look at that and, and thinking about yeah the, the sort of the massive multi billion dollar business of pharmaceuticals and at least put the spotlight on it.
1: So look out over the next few episodes of some topics that we're going to cover. So we're going to look to do an episode on napping and also episodes on menopause. And as we talked a little bit earlier, I think cannabis and use of cannabinoids in sleep would be a great topic mm, for sure for us to cover. And we had a nice suggestion from a listener about revisiting use of devices to measure sleep. Mm. So we did an episode with James Slater talking about some of the devices a couple of years ago, but it, that field moves so fast.
0: Absolutely. Time for an update.
1: Yeah, time for an update yeah. uh, for that. So thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast.
0: And we love hearing from you. So please send us any suggestions at podcast at sleephub.com.au. And of course, we always ask you to do this and some of you do. Thank you very much. And keep them coming. we like you to do a review, if you can, on iTunes and subscribe by any podcast catcher or via the Sleep Talk app.
1: Thanks